1: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perles
3: I can tell that someone has been in here eating, maybe a peanut butter cup or something.
2: You can smell that? Yeah, I can. Peanut. (laughs) Okay, well, it wasn't me. But without seeing any crumbs or telltale signs that someone's been eating in here, you, Seth, can deduce that someone was.
3: That's called indirect observation. And we do this with planets, Molly. There's a lot of interest in detecting extrasolar planets. It's one of astronomy's biggest research areas.
2: Well, how do you detect planets indirectly?
3: Well... Even if you can't see the planet, you can see the effect the planet has on its own sun, because it tugs its own sun back and forth. It causes it to wobble.
2: And that was the case with the discovery, and the very exciting discovery, of the planet Gliese 581g.
3: Right. Detected a mere 20 light years away in our own backyard. And exciting, because it's the first planet found around another star that seems as if it could be habitable.
2: I'm Ollie Bentley.
3: And I'm Seth Shostak, and we're off to the traces.
2: And there's a lot of excitement in this hunt for extrasolar planets, and the discovery of Gliese 581g is just another reason to be encouraged that we're closing in on a world that might be like our own and could be carpeted with some kind of biology.
3: Yep. I spoke with Lisa Kaltenegger. She's an astrophysicist at Harvard. Her own research involves not just detecting these extrasolar planets, looking for those wobbles, but trying to puzzle out clues to whether they might have life. Lisa, researchers have found a possible cousin of our own world, and that's darn exciting.
4: It's amazing. We found the first planet that could potentially be like our own Earth. We don't know yet, but it's in the ballpark. We have to research a little more and maybe...
3: And when you say like our planet, in what way is it like our planet? So
4: right now, if you think about it, it's just a bit more massive, a super Earth, if you want. So it's like a bit more chubby than the Earth. But other than that, it could be rocky. So a bit bigger, a bit harder to walk if you think about it. So the ground would grab you a bit more. And it's like walking underwater. But other than that, it could be similar to what we're experiencing here. How far away is it? Actually, that's the magic of it. It's one of our closest stars. But of course, if I mean closest, it's about 20 light years away. So
3: this is pretty close. It's in our backyard.
4: How was it found? Actually, that's very interesting. So what we're doing is we're actually looking at the star. And if the star moves because the planets tug on it, we call it a wobble. It's basically when you're dragging something around you that's heavy or walking a dog. The dog, you actually walk, but the dog pulls at you, right? So kind of that happens to the star too. The planet pulls on it. And if it does that, we see the light of the star shift. Very, very characteristic away from us and towered us. So we haven't seen it in a way. We have just know that it's there because we had a look at its host star.
3: Now, this has a mass of, uh, on the order of maybe uh, three or five times that of the Earth, right?
4: Yeah, so it's about three to five times more massive than we are.
3: So it's bigger than the Earth. Uh, Does this qualify as what they call a super-Earth? I mean, when we talk about a super-Earth, I think of one that has, you know, more things to do at night. But uh, the super-Earth actually has a uh, fairly precise definition in the astronomical community.
4: Well, actually, we're working on the definition right now, because as we're finding these things, it becomes super important to figure out what they are like. And right now, what we're doing, we're saying like anything that's roughly a bit smaller than 10 to 15 Earth masses, we really like it to be smaller than 10, is qualified as a super Earth. Because, you know, when you form a planet, if... The core, the rocky part of these huge giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn, if that becomes big enough, it just collects all the gas around it. If it does that, it becomes a giant, like our Jupiter, like our Saturn. If it's smaller than about 10 Earth masses, we think it doesn't have to do that, so it could maybe just stay like our own planet.
3: Now, this is not the first super-Earth to have been found, but uh, this is the first one that's found at the right distance from its sun, so it... What might have liquid oceans?
4: So that's the amazing thing about it. First, if it were rocky, we don't know, but we hope so. And now it's actually also at a distance where it's just warm enough that there could be liquid water. And we think we need liquid water for life.
3: Your area of research often encompasses not just finding these planets, but learning something about them. Now, since we can't see this planet, what could we
4: learn about it? So the next steps that we really have to do is think about it. We have 500 worlds already out there, most of them hot, big, fluffy, like Jupiter and Saturn, but now the ones becoming smaller and potentially become habitats. So what we really want to do is look at them. What we really, really, really want to do is build a telescope that could actually collect their light. And then, remember school, when you actually split up the light from red to blue, it was white, then you had a prism, and then went from red to blue. If you do that for a planet, you can figure out what its atmosphere is made of, and if there would be something you and I could breathe. And that then tells you if it's a habitable world like the Earth, or if it's something much more akin to Venus, that's probably not a really good place to be at if you want to breathe oxygen like we do.
3: So, do we have the instruments to actually look for things like oxygen in its atmosphere? Is that something that would have to wait for other astronomical developments?
4: Yeah, so the really bad news in the whole thing is like, we are like Columbus. If you think about it, he knew it was exciting. He knew it had to be done with a ship. Go out, look at it, find these amazing new things. And we are kind of at the same step. We are finding these worlds. What we really want is this ship. In our back, it's a telescope, to collect the light and find out what it's made of. You know, we're staring at this world, and I cannot tell you if it's habitable, because we just don't have the telescope in place to look at it.
3: Lisa Kaltenegger, thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thanks, Seth. It was really a pleasure to be on
2: the show. Lisa Kaltenegger is an astrophysicist at Harvard. Now, Seth, Lisa was not part of the team that found Gliese 581g. So Lisa was not part of Gliese 581g, right? But she is searching for extrasolar planets. Yes. So there are many groups that are hunting for extrasolar planets. And another one is the Kepler group.
3: Yes, but Kepler is doing something different than the other team. So what's Kepler doing? Well, Kepler isn't looking for the wobbles of stars. Kepler is actually looking for planets that might get in front of their star, causing a slight diminution, a slight lessening of the light from that star. And if you just work the numbers, Kepler has the capability of finding planets as small as the Earth, as small as Mars, maybe even smaller. So Kepler is going to find planets that are really, if you will, like our own.
2: Okay, so we're really closing in on these Earth-like planets. Now, of course, the ultimate payoff would be to find life on one of these planets. And coming up later in the program, we'll meet a man... ...who draws
3: aliens for a living. Artistic speculations, but based on science.
5: It's fun just to take off and make any fanciful, imaginative kind of creature that you want. But I think there's kind of an extra depth trying to determine what the conditions on an alien planet might be like... What's the geology like? What's the atmosphere like? And these things are going to drive any life form that might develop there, and it's fun to just kind of let that drive your imagination.
2: But before we meet this man and the drawings that he's made of alien forms on other planets, we have to learn a little bit about those planets and how we might detect life on them.
3: And we're talking a very broad range of life, by the way, Molly, from microbial to intelligent, of course.
2: Okay, so the question is, this is like a riddle, how can you tell if a microbe has been in your studio?
3: Well, by the trace gases it leaves behind, in its atmosphere, those you can measure, One is oxygen. It's an obvious one. We're all fans of it. It was first produced in mass quantities on our planet somewhere between three and a half and two billion years ago by bacteria.
2: That's right. Never mind birds and bees, cyanobacteria were reproducing long before any other living organism on Earth. And biologist Brad Bebout is coaxing them to grow in a rooftop garden atop a NASA building just to see what they can tell us about early life on this planet and also other planets as well. And these are gregarious species, these cyanobacteria, and they like to hang out together, creating microbial mats.
3: Brad, uh, you got a farm going here for <laughs> microbial mats. What, tell me
6: what a microbial mat is. It sounds like something that bacteria would scrape their feet on before entering the house. Okay, so a microbial mat is... A collection of microorganisms, and the, the word mat refers to the fact that it's usually flat. So it's a collection of microorganisms that's kind of growing in a flat way and um, that's dense enough that it holds together like a mat.
3: So you, when I look at them down here, it just looks like a bunch of uh, moss tiles, I don't know, you know, the sort of square pieces of moss growing here that are underwater. It looks like you're trying to drown them. I mean, wh- what do the organisms look like? Presumably this moss is just a collection of things.
6: Okay, so it looks a little like moss, but moss is actually a more advanced plant. These These are all primarily cyanobacteria and diatoms, and there are a whole bunch of different kinds of other microbes that are all mixed in there.
3: If I took a cubic centimeter of this stuff, how how many cells would be, how many living organisms would there be in that cc?
6: In a cubic centimeter, anything from a million to a billion.
3: So these guys are small, they're like a hundredth of a millimeter or something like that? Sure,
6: yeah, they're microns across, so thousandths of a millimeter across.
3: Okay, now, you're not growing these guys for the food supply, I assume. Why are you farming these guys instead of, you know, squash or tomatoes?
6: Well, I mean, people are growing these kinds of organisms for food, too. That's not primarily what we're doing here, but the cyanobacterium spirulina is used as a health food supplement. It's used in food um, in Africa and has been for thousands of years. So some of these cyanobacteria actually are capable of making food for people. But, But that's not why you're growing them. No, so we're interested in them because they're some of the most ancient ecosystems that we know about on Earth, and we're interested in finding out more about life on Earth during the time when these things were evolving and also using them in our search for life on other planets.
3: When you say the way life used to be on Earth, how long ago did most life on Earth look like what you got in this farm?
6: Most of geological history actually looked like what we've got on this farm. So these things are as old as about 3.5 billion years. And the earliest animals that we know about are about a half a billion years. So there's about a three billion year period of time there where these things were pretty much the only thing on Earth. Some
3: people will know cyanobacteria uh, produce oxygen as a byproduct of their existence it's just something they do for a living and, and indeed much of the atmosphere that we're breathing now the oxygen in the atmosphere we're breathing now is due to guys like these right?
6: That's right the estimates are that something like 50% of the air that we're breathing right now the oxygen that we're breathing right now is due to something that's a phytoplankton in the ocean and these microbial mats are a part of that Now, that's kind of an
3: interesting thing because in SETI, we're looking for signals that aliens might be sending our way. But in a sense, these microbial mats are also sending a signal into space and have been doing so for a long time.
6: Sure. The microbial mats that we have growing up here on the roof are responsible for putting most of the oxygen into the atmosphere. So the thinking goes, if we're looking for life on other planets, that one diagnostic biomarker gas would be oxygen. So if we find oxygen, it's an indicator of a particular kind of photosynthesis called oxygenic photosynthesis.
3: In other words, you could find these microbial mats, or their alien analogs, you could find them at, I don't know, dozens, 50, 100, 1,000 light years away if you had a big enough telescope. Is that what you're saying?
6: Sure, if you had a big enough telescope and the ability to resolve the gases in the atmosphere of planets that are circling other, other stars. So that's the premise behind using these things for, for experiments in which we look to see what kinds of biomarker gases they're producing. Well, what do they produce other than oxygen? So they also produce methane. Um, One of the studies that we have going on here is to look for methane coming out of microbial mats in all sorts of environments. And more recently, we're concentrating on the kinds of environments that may have existed on Mars during the period of time when Mars was a little more hospitable than it is now. So microbial mats make methane. There are some people who think that methane's been um, found on Mars, it's very controversial, but uh, we're spending a lot of time looking for methane in hypersaline environments just like the ones that existed on Mars.
3: So there's some chance, you say it's controversial, that we may have already found the equivalent of microbial mats on Mars. We may have found the Martians in their little green, sort of moss-like looking guys.
6: So methane comes from a lot of places on Earth. It mostly comes from cows. So you could think that we've actually found evidence for cows on Mars. Again, the the detection of methane is not without controversy, but there is methane coming out of many, many microbial systems, both the kinds of microbial systems that we work on, which are up in the sunlit portion of the world, and methane also comes from the subterranean uh, microorganisms. So the so-called deep biosphere also produces a lot of methane.
3: Yeah, so it could be microbes, could be cows, uh, accounting for this, if you will, dairy air. <laughs> Finally, Brad, I've got to ask you, you, you know, you're a biologist. You probably grew up thinking that animals were neat, life was neat. I, I don't know what sort of hobbies you had. Maybe you dissected frogs or grew plants or something. But what got you interested in these guys? Could be, to be quite honest, they don't seem to hold up their side of the conversation. They don't move, they don't seem friendly, they don't seem to need affection. How did you get involved
6: with these guys? Well, that's because you haven't seen them under the microscope. They're really cool under the microscope. I don't know. you know I was in graduate school and there was uh, a really nice field site out on a barrier island in North Carolina. It seemed like a great place to work. After that, I was hired by NASA that was in, who uh, NASA at that time was trying to figure out the Allen Hills meteorite and trying to figure out whether or not that had signs of life and they were looking for people who had uh, more expertise in, in looking at these earlier forms of life. And that hooked you. Yeah, no yeah. So here I am.
3: All right. Brad Bebout, thank you so much. And I'll let you get back to your bucolic existence here on the the roof of a NASA Ames research building. Okay, thanks very much.
2: Brad Bebout is a biologist at NASA Ames. Coming up, hang on to your cow patties. Uh, Do use gloves. (laughs) We're talking trash on Off to the Traces on Are We Alone?
0: And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: In the iconic 1968 science fiction film, Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston plays an astronaut who lands on what he thinks is a distant planet. But at some point, he's combing through what seem to be the remains of an earlier civilization.
1: What are you doing? constructing a past life.
5: Whoever owned him must have been in pretty bad shape. He wore false teeth and eyeglasses. Towards the end, he had this prefabricated valve put in it.
2: And from this pile of discarded dentures and glasses and other odds and ends.
6: I don't say it was a man like I knew at home, but he must have been a close relative because he had all the same weaknesses
2: he's able to deduce that an animal, like a human animal, once inhabited the alien planet where he now stands.
3: Of course, the planet that he's standing on...
2: Spoiler alert! Turn down the volume if you haven't seen this movie yet, and then count to five and bring it back up.
3: ...is Earth. It isn't until he sees the crusty remains of the Statue of Liberty that he's certain.
2: So what can we learn about a civilization from what it discards? We turn
3: to Robin Nagel, one of the few anthropologists of garbage, Molly went to see her at New York University and began by dumping her own trash on Robin's table. That's what happens when two women get together, I guess. They talk trash. All
2: right. Okay, so now you put, you put paper out over everything. Yes, so this and, is,
7: and Molly, I've turned on the lights. We want to clear a clear really good look here. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the bag is, uh, we're
2: just going to tip it. Here it goes. So the whole, the whole trash bag is going under the table.
7: All right, then. So here we are. Well, let's see. You have a Starbucks coffee that requires a certain amount of fiddling because it has your name on it, and they only put your name on it if it's not a straight pull and then they hand it to you. It's something that requires a little more attention. So you have slightly fussy coffee tastes. There's a medicine bottle in here, and I will not reveal to the world whatever this is. I have no idea. But that, if I were curious to know something about you, I could look up whatever is this drug, and that would tell me something more. If you weren't standing in front of me and I was looking at this, I would know you have long dark hair, because there's a few of them. Some hairs are in there, yeah. Banana peel. Now I'm looking at the plastic that's here, so I'm feeling a little self-conscious about the plastic that's here. Well, let me let you off the hook for the plastic. New York City recycles only two categories of plastic, and the bottom of your Starbucks, or I'm sorry, the top of your Starbucks chicken on flatbed with hummus, that plastic (laughs) is a number one. So technically the city would recycle it, however, They don't take number ones in this shape so you have to throw it away okay now again though i am traveling so it's a little (laughs) bit
2: different it's true it's true you eat a little you eat differently (laughs) am i sounding a little bit (laughs) because well you know you're really exposing yourself here when you You put your trash out
7: you are making yourself kind of naked to the world here in ways that trash can do but that very few people have the guts to make this public and then this plastic clamshell that held something with a sauce that is a number... Can I read the number on here? Now, this is so strange that they make these little bitty triangles with the numbers so small. Is it a six or five? Six, Let's it, see. It, it, that's some food on it. It's a six. New York City does not recycle this anyway. So this actually surprisingly durable object to have such a temporary life. In fact, this is an example of the kind of object that troubles me particularly because why not wrap up a little Christmas gift in this, or use it to store something. It's durable enough to have a life longer than just you filled it, paid for it, took it home, or to the hotel, used it, emptied it, and now it's done. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a real thing. Where will that end up, that, that little plastic clamshell? If you throw this out on a corner wastebasket, it will go to a waste-to-energy facility in Essex, New Jersey, and it will be burned and It will be used in part as energy for some of the homes surrounding that facility. So, this exact object, that's its future. All right, what else? Band aids. I'm going to guess blisters on your feet, but that might. Well done. That might be because you're in the city, you probably brought shoes you thought were comfortable, but uh, they weren't really so comfortable. (laughs) So, you needed band aids. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. Okay. Also, oh, you wear contacts. All right, there's, oh, and more hair. We're going to put the hair over there. Oh,
2: and you missed. That's actually also dental floss wrapped oh. around the hair and stuck onto the little contact case.
7: Correct, it is. Dental floss, contact case, and hair. See, now this is the thing. Gooey trash, not so bad. Dry trash, not so bad. Hair, I have trouble with hair. Some people don't, but when I see, ha- ha- like everybody has their break point where they kind of go, ugh, hair, that's mine. Anyway, so yeah, I'm going to put your little hair over there. Oh you, you needed new socks because you had the blister and the socks and you were trying to solve the problem and okay. that's right, and those socks are actually too thin, I think, but and you can't take them
2: back so this is the trash from just say a day actually because you know they empty out the trash in in a hotel every day, so this is really just from twenty four hours or so, and when you look at it like this it's it's actually a lot of trash and um, well, compared to what it's a lot of trash compared to what well um it seems like a lot for one day because then you start doing the math and how it adds up for the week or so and now I'm acutely aware and because I knew I was going to talk to you of how much I'm throwing out
7: you may stay acutely aware for a few days but it won't last Mm -hmm. the habit is too deeply ingrained in all of us and it's too easy so in one word when we look at this trash
2: in front of us now because we're sitting at the table where all my trash is we live in a throwaway culture that's the understatement isn't it yes the, the trash that you saw here, is this representative of, of what you see, let's say, in New York City, what you see people throw out? How does it compare, and in some ways, what can, we, can you generalize about the sort of things that people are throwing out?
7: Well, this, this little collection represents a certain class mm-hmm. first. New York City is an amalgam of a whole lot of different classes and backgrounds and ethnicities and economic levels and education levels and reading preferences and drinking preferences, so this reflects a tiny slice of what you'll find in New York trash generally, but it varies from place to place. Some neighborhoods have heavier food waste. Some have heavier waste of things like the containers of the prepared food. Nobody cooks there. They just buy the food made and then throw out the wrapping. What's the
2: one thing that people throw out, almost completely unused, that they throw out? Everything here, I've used, actually. But what do people throw out that they they don't even touch?
7: Uh, Food is often a big category in some neighborhoods. Not all, but in some You'll have people who buy, especially produce, and, you know, they're sure going to cook that broccoli, but then they put it off and put it off and put it off, and finally they're just going to throw out the broccoli.
2: You must be surprised by some of the things that you see. Last night I was walking around, and it seems like it's trash day every day in <laughs> New York City, so I'm always hearing the trash, the garbage men. I'm sorry. Oh, garbage I,
7: man. Yeah, I have to correct you. Garbage man. It's like saying Oriental or Negro. It's really outdated and is not the. it's sanitation worker. I didn't even think about it when I said it. So thank
2: you for correcting me on that. So the, the sanitation workers who come by and then they, they scoop everything up. But before they did last night, I walked around a little bit. There were mattresses. There were tables, furniture. There was clothing. All of this stuff was put out. Not just the trash that we see here that is my used garbage, but items that look like they could
7: continue their life with someone else. Certainly. There's a whole lot of stuff that gets put on the street for collection that could have as you say another life or more life furniture is a big one furniture of course now is easy to buy cheaply and rather than worry about repairing it the most common reaction is is often just well let's just buy more but a a kind of a bigger question would be why why is it okay that we have this single direction line from industry to manufacture to marketing to consumption to use to discard why don't we have a circle why, instead of hiring people to pick it up off the street, throw it in a truck, and take it to some form of a dump, why don't people put it on the street and then someone takes it up, picks it up, and takes it to a refurbishing center?
2: And, and what's the answer to that? Why don't we do
7: that? Why are we so comfortable just throwing things away? It's a deeply ingrained set of habits. It's a deeply ingrained set of habits that we have uh, learned to live with across. The last hundred and sixty years maybe, maybe more. We've always created trash, that's something to keep in mind. This particular moment in time does not represent a culture that is unique in the fact that we generate garbage. Cultures across time and space, if you go back and even look at small-scale societies, tribal groups, there is a form of waste. Archaeology couldn't exist otherwise. We don't call it garbage when it's 5,000 years old, but that's what it was when it was generated. Now, however, It's partly an economic foundation. You have to get rid of the old to buy the new if it were refurbished. And if we valued something that had been remade to usable condition as much as we value the new, then maybe it would be easier to set those systems up. There's also, it is wrapped around attitudes toward the desire for something... uh, different, fashionable. And I don't mean that this is, I'm not judging this as a negative. It's, again, this is a deeply human impulse. But it was interesting you use the word old because it really gets at the definition
2: of what's old, because some things really wear out and at some point you have to get rid of them. But it seems like what we consider to be old may be that it's just lost its novelty, and that's different. And now with a lot of electronics we have, you have to get a new iPod or you have to get a new phone, and it's not because it doesn't work anymore, but in order to keep up with everybody else and also with the new software updates or whatever it might be, you actually have to buy a new electronic item.
7: Yes, yes, but again, that's not, that's not new. A colleague of mine named Harvey Mollich here at NYU, he's a sociologist, he wrote a book about the origins of things. And he makes the point that replacing what you have that's perfectly good because you kind of want to be like the people next to you or down the block or around the corner. There's evidence for that going back to the ancient Chinese. So this is not just a contemporary impulse. What was the evidence, what's the example with the ancient Chinese? I I would have to reread that part of his book, but uh, it had something to do with the court of the Ming Dynasty and how when certain people changed their dress or changed the tools they used for calligraphy, it then became all the rage to get those new tools like so-and-so had, rather than use your old tools. It still worked perfectly well, but they weren't quite the right color, or they didn't have quite the right heft in your hand, or you were out of date if you use those old tools.
2: Now, you said that you were were not casting any judgment on my trash here, but in general, do you feel neutral about the amount of garbage, trash that we toss, our throwaway culture? Is it, is it a neutral subject for you, or do you feel like we throw away too much?
7: I feel like the tr- trash we throw out, the quantity and the content, is a profound tragedy. I really strongly believe that this is a way of life that we are very accustomed to, that we mostly don't think about very much, although recently that's changing with greater environmental awareness, but that, my God, what a waste of the people who made the things that we use very briefly and then discard, so their time and labor, the resources, the, the, all those plastics are petroleum-based. All of that to sit on a curb, to go in the back of a truck, to end up moldering in a landfill or, or burned for energy Surely, we can come up with a better way of creating, of reusing or discarding our material culture, our material world—the the the pieces of things that we use every day. It's not at all neutral for me. So much of your study has been studying
2: the lives of sanitation workers, And, and I believe you've written that you've asked posed the question of why is it that we esteem professors and people of higher learning, for example but not the the laborers who actually keep the city flowing and without whom we wouldn't be able to survive.
7: I do wonder about that a lot. Why are some forms of knowledge given such a high status when to me equally important if not more important expertise is considered less less important, less it's less valued. It's understood if you're a sanitation worker that it's an unskilled job. I don't think so. Having done it, you you have to master a lot of different skills and then you learn every day you're on the street you learn a little more and a little
2: more. Actually it can be a dangerous job at times when things go flying out of trucks for example.
7: You are f- more likely, as a sanitation worker, to be injured or killed on the job than if you are a cop or a firefighter. And that's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It is more dangerous because of things that fly out of the truck and because you are dealing with a very large piece of machinery that has extremely powerful moving parts. I know men who've lost their fingers because they got caught under the blade in the back that was compressing the trash. And also because you step in and out of traffic all day. What lasts the
2: longest when we throw things out? What actually sticks around the longest?
7: The plastics, metals that are not recycled, um, paper if it's buried deep enough, because inside older landfills the compaction is so thorough that there's no oxygen available, there's no possibility of any kind of serious decay, so that paper doesn't decompose, for instance. In fact, doing the archaeology of landfills, that's how you date what you're pulling up.
2: Now if humans disappeared from the earth, a lot of the trash would disappear. What other creatures might go the way of the trash? For example, I'm thinking of rats. Rats tend to go where the trash is and where the humans are, but there are a lot of other creatures that are dependent on what we throw out.
7: You're exactly correct. The rat population would crash because we feed them, very simply. Other scavenging animals that rely on trash, apparently now in New York, possums are becoming a bit of a nuisance, which I think is sort of odd and charming. I I sort of like the idea of possums, but raccoons, particular nighttime scavenging animals, their populations would undergo serious shifts if humans disappeared. Ultimately, of course, I think (laughs) the world would be much better off in many real environmental ways. But without humans? Oh, of course, without humans. But I can hardly advocate. I mean, that's (laughs) the goal is to learn how to be more compassionate and responsible because here we are. And as an
2: anthropologist, your job would become quite narrow in scope without the humans, right? Without the humans,
7: I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) And I'd also be pretty lonely. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.
3: One woman who makes a living off our sloppy habits, Robin Nagel, is an anthropologist at New York University in, where else, New York City. Coming up, hunting for the trash left by alien civilizations.
2: Hey, who dropped this old model tricorder? Can't you pick up after yourself, Zork? Of course, if he did, we wouldn't be listening to Off to the Traces on Are We Alone? Okay, Seth, all this talking trash. We know what it says about the values of our civilization, one that were quite wasteful. But are we unique in the universe?
3: Well, the answer of the theoreticians would be yes and no. I mean, of course, humans are unique. I mean, we've got to be us, and we are. But we may share habits with
2: other intelligent species,
3: and that is littering as we go.
2: Okay, so in this case it's not so much plastic water bottles as...
3: Spaceships. That's right, spaceships. When I heard about this idea that the galaxy might be strewn with extraterrestrial litter, I called Robin. I I know we just heard from Robin Nagel about Earth's trash, but I'm talking about Robin Hansen. He's an economics professor at George Mason University in Virginia, and he has ideas about alien trash.
2: Well, Seth, what does an economics professor know about alien trash?
3: Well, he doesn't know anything specific, but what he can say is that the laws of economics are probably universal. Everybody tries to be efficient. Everybody tries to have a competitive advantage, and he figures that that may show up in what extraterrestrials might leave behind. It all begins with an alien diaspora
1: They start somewhere, and they end up somewhere else, and in between, they have to go from A to B. So we imagine aliens spreading out from some origin, slowly but surely, taking over and using up territory in between.
3: So we're talking about society that has spread out, and they may have passed this way. They may have come through the neighborhood of Earth. Is that possible?
1: Right. So it could well be that this diaspora started billions of years ago and long since passed here. And we might only see the remnants of their uh, wave that came this way.
3: So let's hypothesize that there has been a wave of fast-moving, aggressive aliens passing through this part of the galaxy. What sort of remnants are they going to leave? I mean, what, what sort of clues will they leave behind?
1: Well, you have to think about what it takes to go really fast. So obviously you could have a fast ship, but uh, however well you build your ship, eventually it breaks down and it has to be repaired and has to be reconstructed. And so what you want to imagine is that they fly for a while, And then they stop somewhere to regroup and rebuild, and they fly out again. So the key thing is they're looking for places they can stop and grow fast.
3: So are you suggesting that we should look for, if you will, pit stops, places where they've had to repair their ships?
1: Not just repair their ships, but build whole new ships. So presumably, the ships get destroyed along the way. They send out 10 ships, and maybe only one of them makes it to the next spot.
3: So what does that say about what we should look for? I mean, should we be looking on... I don't know, the planets and the moons of our solar system looking for the detritus of a repair and and construction facility?
1: We don't quite know exactly where to look, but what we know that we're going to want to be looking for is the places that can grow fast. So there's all these resources in the universe, but most of them are pretty hard to use. They take a long time to collect together and build up into something useful. And among all these resources, something is the fastest to use. We don't know what it is, but it might be a comet, it might be an asteroid, it might be a star... Whatever these usable resources are, that's the thing they would have been running out first to grab. They grabbed these resources, they turned it into more ships, and most of them smashed and destroyed themselves along the way, and only a few made it. So the other thing we can look for is the remnants of the ships that didn't make it.
3: So you're talking about, if you will, alien trash.
1: Right. But not so much stuff they threw out the window, (laughs) but the remnants of the ship itself that didn't make it. So what you should expect to see then is whatever they make ships out of that they throw out to go to the next place, Most of those won't make it, and there should be some remnant of that.
3: Well, it's certainly an interesting hypothesis, but if you actually wanted to conduct a search, maybe you would need a little bit more focus. Where should we look? How do we look? I mean, these remnants could be anywhere. They could be light years away.
1: But there's one clear signature, which would be these seeds would have momentum in a particular direction. And so when they smashed into things, they would tend to smash into one side of things. And if they left a remnant of a magnetic field from the movement or any sort of debris that flew away, it would all tend to also be in one direction. So we should be looking for a direction.
3: Okay. So let's say you were given some money to do a a search to prove that the galaxy is not only inhabited, but it includes uh, inhabitants who've tried to get somewhere else, tried to move. What would you do?
1: Well, it's tough now because there's so much we don't know. Obviously, the first thing to look for is any sort of asymmetric features in the universe. There's some rough data about this, about magnetic fields, but there's other reasons why they might be aligned in a particular direction. And of course, eventually the other thing to do is to study better how to build a spaceship and how to fly it out there and how to land somewhere and build up. And again, we don't know exactly how to do that, but the more sort of engineering studies we had about trying to figure out how to do that, the better idea we might have what sort of thing you'd want to grab and grow in before you flew out again.
3: Okay. Well, you know, I have to say as somebody who does conventional SETI, Robin, that this sounds, again, like a very uh, interesting idea because it's certainly plausible that advanced societies in in the 13 billion year history of the universe, that advanced societies may have passed this way. But, you know, other than hoping that astronomers will eventually find something that looks fishy, in the sense of being, a, if you will, a trail to the West for the aliens. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do with the idea. Can you give me some clues?
1: Well, theory is like that. <laughs> it's sort of working out the basic theory of what we expect to see, and it gives us some insights into the world, but at always a bit of a distance between the basic theory and the observations. And that's why there are good professional observational scientists who have to think through how exactly you can turn an abstract theory into concrete observations.
3: Okay, so you're leaving it up to the astronomers. I think I am. <laughs> Robin Hansen, I want to thank you so much for talking to us about uh, the race of the aliens.
1: You're most welcome.
2: Economics is Robin Hansen's area of expertise and the one that led him to his theory of littering aliens.
3: Now, how about literal aliens, or rather trying to imagine what aliens might
5: be like, and then doing their portraits?
2: Everything we're learning about exoplanets informs the alien drawings of this man.
5: I'm Joel Hagen. I'm a full-time instructor in computer graphics at Modesto Junior College. Anyone with an imagination can draw an alien.
3: I mean, you just draw a block, stick some antennae or whatever on there, fill it out with big eyes. But Joel Hagen makes informed, scientifically plausible alien portraits, and he's done so for NASA. He showed Molly some of his work when she went to visit him at his office in Modesto, California.
5: Well, right here, we're actually looking at a fairly recent project that I did imagining what possible biomes and life forms might exist on Titan. The uh, Cassini mission has shown such a wonderful extravagance of new knowledge about what the atmosphere and what the conditions are like on Titan that it's fun to imagine if, if life could be possible there. And so... A few of these things show what life might be like in an aquifer. So
2: So Titan is one of the moons of Saturn and it has a very dense atmosphere, a lot of petroleum products on Titan. There are a lot of organics. And yet you spend some time imagining if life were to exist on Titan, this is what it might look like.
5: Well, yes. And the beautiful thing about the Cassini mission is that part of that mission that was extremely successful was a lander that parachuted through the dense atmosphere of Titan, this murky, organic atmosphere, raining, raining organics down onto the surface. What I'm imagining is then that down beneath the surface, there might be aquifers where perhaps liquid water or water and ammonia in combination, perhaps heated by, you know, interior forces from the moon would stay liquid and perhaps life could evolve in an atmosphere like that, in an environment like that.
2: So describe some of the pictures that you have here. And are these done with computer graphics? Are these paintings or sketches that you've done?
5: I like working with both physical media, like pencils and paints, and with digital media. And so these are all digital images done in Photoshop and 3D software. So the environments that I'm imagining here are dark subterranean caverns, you know, on on Titan, filled with liquid and very sort of... uh, low order life forms things on the order of sponges or kelp, even if you want to sort of visualize what they might look like
2: in fact that's what this looks like here so you have sort of dark greens and blues it looks like the bottom of some sort of lake maybe with sort of rugged terrain the, yes. the this ocean bottom or lake bottom of Titan but the the lakes or the oceans on Titan have are very rich in hydrocarbons are they not?
5: Yes How uh, would you
2: imagine these creatures to live when you say that they're filtering nutrients?
5: Well, we have such interesting examples of extremophiles on Earth, of organisms that live in caves or even live kilometers beneath the ground in fairly sterile lava environments and so on, up in Idaho, for instance, and there are intriguing mechanisms having no relationship at all to photosynthesis or any basis on sunlight, which doesn't exist there, where these organisms are actually able to metabolize elements within the lava and so on, rather than drawing their nutrition from plant life that they're eating or from sunlight directly or anything else. So I'm imagining that it's not implausible to suggest that organisms could evolve, which could be completely uh, chemo-autotrophic, not drawing their sustenance from the sunlight or anything else, but simply from chemical interaction with the materials in the environment.
2: When you were in school, were you one of those students who would doodle um, while the while the teacher was talking, because your imagination would kind of take you off, and maybe you even doodled some creatures like this while you were growing up.
5: Yes, you got me. You pegged it. Uh, in <laughs> incessant doodling and tons of stuff, you know. In the early days, it was there were lots of tyrannosaurs, you know, and and so on, <laughs> floating around my uh, my English pages. But uh, gradually, I found that my interest in space travel, and my interest in the planets of the solar system, and my interest in paleontology and dinosaurs and so on, all seemed somehow to coalesce in thinking about what life might be like on other worlds. And the fun in it to me was not just having an unfettered imagination, drawing any crazy thing that I wanted with tentacles and, you know, antennas and stuff, but actually trying to imagine what science would lead to under other conditions.
2: Let's look at icy conditions because the other bet for life for some is Europa. This is the moon of Jupiter and it's uh, covered with ice and scientists do imagine that there's an ocean beneath. Now you just pulled up a drawing that you've made yes, this is Yes, uh,
5: this is a digital Im- uh, image that I did of the surface of Europa with Jupiter off in the distance and so I'm imagining these this very icy surface with a few rifts showing here which might indicate the uh, the cracking and shifting of the surface above what we hope is an ocean kept warm by you know by internal conditions on the planet
2: okay so show me what you think is living underneath the ice of Europa
5: many of my concepts such as the one we're looking on here are based on what we see in deep-sea environments around hydrothermal vents and so on. So I've created a kind of a deep-sea environment where the chimneys are kind of extended up a little taller, so it's almost like a forest of chimneys with hot plumes of water coming up out of them, and then life forms growing around them. And we see examples of that all over our own planet in the deep sea environments.
2: And you seem to have some other creatures here that look a little bit like heads of broccoli or cauliflower. They
5: do look a little bit like that. I hadn't thought of it. What I'm actually drawing here, and let me switch to a couple of uh, head here a little bit.
2: Yeah, now more the, like jellyfish. Now.
5: Yeah, a little bit more here. And in fact, what you're also seeing as we're looking is the evolution of some of my concepts. We looked at an early stage and now we're looking at a slightly later stage as my concept is evolving.
2: So one was maybe before dinner and then one was
5: later. (laughs) That's right, that's exactly right, yeah. But what I'm really shooting for here are these long stalks that you see that tether an almost umbrella-like or parachute-like life form down to some holdfast on the ocean floor. And so the currents from some of these chimney vents that we're looking at here would sort of support through their upwelling, support these parachute-like forms, you know, that are tethered there, keep them within range of the nutrients and the comfortable temperature region, and also force nutrients continually up through there so that these gill-like slits on the bottom can filter them out.
2: And again, these would be creatures that would be surviving without sunlight.
5: Exactly. Yes.
2: Now, what about Gliese 581G, which I hope one day they rename? Um, (laughs) So have you been asked, uh, regarding this new planet, to draw any creatures that you think might be inhabiting
4: it?
5: I actually have. One of the programs that did some work earlier with me has contacted me to see if I'd be interested in developing a biome and some life forms for Gliese 581g. And it's very interesting. I, I have to say my imagination is already running down some pretty vivid lines there, and it might be fun to do that. Can you
2: share some of those vivid lines right now?
5: Sure. Well, I, I think one of the things that's very interesting about it is that the planet appears to be tidally locked to the sun. And so the the same face would always be directed toward the sun. And so you you probably have conditions where it's eternally dark on one side of the planet, eternally light on the other side of the planet. And there may be a very nice habitable zone around the Terminator that is kind of midway between the two where you could sort of find a comfortable temperature, you know, between the two extremes of the planet, comfortable weather and a comfortable light environment. And so that's the area that I think is kind of intriguing.
2: And I suppose those creatures, in that case, if you know that there is a light source, that you have a sun there, that those creatures would be different than some of these creatures that you've made that are living on the bottoms of oceans or in places where there there is no sunlight.
5: Exactly. Uh, I think that's true. And the conditions there would be very interesting in a way, something we're not used to. No matter where you would be on Gliese 581g, the sun would be frozen in the sky for your entire lifetime. It wouldn't rise. It wouldn't set. And so depending on the latitude that you are, and in this case, talking about being at this comfortable terminator zone, you'd have a land of eternal sunset or sunrise, depending on your philosophy, I guess, your outlook on things. And this could lead to, I think, very interesting, not just life forms, but ecosystems, very interesting biomes where the sunlight is always coming from the same direction. There might be the equivalent of plants always growing on one surface, the surface that's only facing that sun, and devoid of life on the other side where there's just no radiation hitting it.
2: You know, some of these pictures remind me of, in a way, are the drawings that John White did when he came to Colonial Jamestown in the sev- early 17th century. And so he, he drew what he saw around him and some creatures that he wasn't familiar with in England, including certain kinds of jellyfish and flying fish. And I have a feeling that you would appreciate that idea of seeing something for the first time the way that he did and just marveling at it because it was like something you had never seen before.
5: You're absolutely right. And you've, you've actually stumbled on a passion of mine. I. I love the journals and the drawings of the artists who accompanied scientific expeditions in the in the early seafaring days and so on. They're sort of the equivalent of space missions, you know, crossing these vast distances to new lands, unfamiliar creatures, unfamiliar plants, unfamiliar people. And the drawings they produced are just marvelous, things they saw for the first time no one else had seen, and trying to meticulously record these and communicate these wonders back to the people at home.
2: And... I would imagine that to the people back in England, it was like looking at alien creatures.
5: Very much. They must have been so unfamiliar and so, so marvelous to everyone. It's an emotion. It's a feeling that in my imagination, I think in some way I'm trying to reproduce in my own work, to try to somehow jump ahead in time to moments when we might find, actually find things, these wonders on other planets.
2: Well, Joel Hagan, thank you very much.
5: Well, it's been my pleasure. I'm so glad you could uh, come today and we could share these things.
3: Joel Hagen is an instructor of computer graphics at Modesto Junior College. And that's it for our program. And that's not an alien concept, although those who we owe gratitude might be.
2: And that includes NASA Astrobiology Institute itself, (laughs) Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler.
3: Also, thanks to support from Rena Shulsky and Sammy David. If you missed this program or you heard it and now you already miss listening to it, discover our archive on our website, radio.seti.org
2: Also join other listeners and comment as you wish on our blog, Are We a Blog?, our Facebook page, and Twitter. You'll find them all on our website, too. With Lucky Landslots, Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.